On September 4th, 2018, Amazon briefly became the first public company in history to be worth 1 trillion US dollars. It was only for a brief moment, about half an hour, and it did close the day out below the 13 figure mark, but what it did do was pave the way for the modern giants of the corporate world. Trillion dollar companies are now not an alien concept, and while the frontrunner Amazon has not yet comfortably settled into this position, companies like Apple and Microsoft now do hold this status. What makes this whole topic even more interesting is the introduction of Saudi Aramco in late 2019. A company that was once the state-owned enterprise of Saudi Arabia was then sold off into public markets and quickly claimed the top spot with a valuation closer to 2 trillion US dollars. So what is going on here? What gives these companies a valuation larger than most national GDPs? Why has this been such a recent development and what may the future hold for these new megacorporations? Well, to understand all of that, we must first understand company valuations. Actually finding an accurate value for a company is one of the hardest questions to answer in business. Things like hedge funds spend almost all of their time trying to discern accurate values for companies to see if they are getting a good deal by buying up their stocks. So if teams of hundreds of some of the smartest financiers in the world can't necessarily agree on a value for a single company, it shows how difficult this whole thing can be to determine. When we look at the value of an individual, we normally state it in terms of net worth, which is pretty straightforward. Add up all of their assets, take away their liabilities, and whatever you have left over is their net worth. For companies, you can do this too. It's called a book value of a company, and people will look at this figure, but no one really cares too much about it, because companies are weird things. What people will most often look at is market capitalization. Market capitalization is the total number of shares multiplied by the trading value of those shares on a given day. For example, if Apple had a billion outstanding shares and they were each worth $500, well, the market capitalization for Apple would be $500 billion. Pretty simple, but also pretty complicated at the same time. You see, the market capitalization of a company is almost always higher than the book value of a company, which doesn't really make sense. Why would I pay a billion dollars for a company that only has a net asset position of $200 million? Well, that extra $800 million comes from the inherent brand value of the company. Apple might have factories and patents and shop fronts and, you know, actually a lot of cash. But those don't add up to the $1.3 trillion that the company is currently valued at. They probably collectively add up to about half a trillion dollars, which is still an unbelievable amount of money. But that extra $800 billion comes from the intrinsic value of Apple. People hear Apple stores and immediately think of big glass boxes filled with friendly people in blue shirts or simple and easy to use phones or brushed aluminium cheese graters or, or whatever. The point is that the company has real estate in your mind. 
and the cumulative value of that collective consensus is said to be worth that remaining $800 billion. The same is true for other companies. The structural efficiencies of the organization plus the brand value give it a value greater than the sum of its parts. But weirdly enough, this can actually work in reverse. Some companies have such terrible management and such poor brand value that their market capitalization is actually worth less than their book value. What this means is that effectively, you should be able to buy up all of the shares in the company, pay off all of the debts of the company, and still turn a profit by selling off their factories or trucks or shop fronts or or whatever it is that they own, which doesn't really make sense. And in theory, even a worthless company should never have a market value less than its book value. But alas, nobody ever said that the stock market was an exact science. Curiously enough, Warren Buffett, today one of the wealthiest men in the world, actually got his start in the world of high finance by buying up these undervalued company and stripping them for parts. So, it does actually happen. Okay, so now we understand the difference between book value, market value, and brand value, and we also understand that all of these values may or may not mean anything at all. So, let's look at what is causing these companies to become so valuable. Trillion dollar companies were not a thing five years ago, and now we have at least three of them with plenty more tailing behind. Even ignoring Saudi Aramco because it is not your typical company that started from the ground up, we will find that the most valuable company 10 years ago was ExxonMobil, with a market capitalization peaking at around $370 billion in the fourth quarter of 2010. Now. Here in the first quarter of 2020, Apple Incorporated has a market valuation close on four times that amount. Now, of course, the first thing that must be addressed when we're comparing the price of old things to the price of new things is inflation. Normally, inflation in the USA tracks around 1 to 2% annually over the last 10 years, which will of course make companies 10 years ago seem less valuable on paper but not nearly to the extent that we have seen with these companies. Apple, for example, has had an annual growth rate of over 10% per year over the past 10 years to get to the monolithic position it is in today. And it wasn't even a particularly high performer. The other thing to consider is the natural growth rate of an economy. Normally, major established national economies target a 2% to 3% annual growth rate in GDP. This by extension will mean that more money is trading hands and ultimately large corporations will be there to collect their share of that money as profit. And sure, this is ultimately true. But even still, these companies have massively outpaced national growth year after year. You see, in reality, the stock market has grown. It has grown quite substantially and it has beaten out growth during these good times. But that tends to be the way that stock markets behave. The stock market is more volatile than the overall economy. So when times are good, it may double or triple the growth rate of the national economy as a whole, but when times are bad, such as during the subprime mortgage crisis of 2008, the reactions are far more severe. It is not unheard of for entire markets to lose 
40% of their value overnight, even when the economy may only have negative 3% growth overall. Even with their more volatile position, over time, public stock markets have outperformed the US economy in general, purely by virtue of the fact that big public businesses tend to want to make as much money as possible as efficiently as possible. And entire national economies have other motives besides, like, you know, feeding and educating their population, securing their borders and all of that good stuff. But this is all a bit different. And it all has to do with the type of companies that are claiming the top spot. These were the largest companies in 2010. There were a few familiar faces, but for the most part, they were all major retailers and natural resource giants from a surprisingly diverse array of countries. We of course saw America and China, but also Switzerland, England, the Netherlands, and even Australia and Brazil. This is the list as of 2019. The companies that make up the list are exclusively American and Chinese, and what is more is that the list is dominated by tech companies. Tech companies are the powerhouses that gave us the modern world, but now it looks increasingly like they own the modern world. Typically when you think of big businesses, we think of some fat cat CEO lording over their factories or oil fields or a shipping fleet. The truth is though, today, true wealth wears flip-flops and a sweatshirt and here is why. When we are looking at the valuation of a company, a very important point that we noted was that the market value is not necessarily a great indication of what the company is truly worth, but rather it is a product of investors' speculation based on the true underlying wealth of the company, plus its ability to manage those resources in a way to make money. Tech companies are particularly good at this given their typical business model. All major companies need money to operate. Oil companies need to build wells and manufacturing giants need to build factories. In the early days of these companies, this money comes from shares. It's the whole reason that company shares exist in the first place. Now, the eventual plan is that the business will use these oil wells or factories or whatever to turn a profit. And some of this profit will be used to run the business and some of it will be used to pay back these investors. And everyone kind of wins. Now tech companies are not too different here, but they have a very different product. A product with a very, very low marginal cost. You see, you can invest into an oil company for them to build an oil well, and even once it's established, the company is going to have ongoing costs. It will need to pay workers to pump this oil, ship this oil, refine this oil, and distribute the gasoline that comes out of this oil all over the world. A tech company still has upfront costs of paying developers to build a platform, but once that is done, the marginal cost per unit is very, very small. Look at Economics Explained, for example. We are a company that produces video content for internet users. Each video probably costs us about $1,000 to produce, but once that's done, it's done. If every video gets 25 views, it will have cost us $1,000. And if every video gets 1 million views, it would have cost us $1,000. There is no additional cost for every extra unit that we will sell, I suppose. 
So for these companies, getting the upfront investment is super important. But once they have it, oh boy, their profit potential is pretty much limitless. Of course, this is extremely oversimplified and it only goes halfway to explaining these mega corporations. Amazon, for example, does have a lot of ongoing expenses. Things like distribution centers, development teams, and also server infrastructure. Server infrastructure is expensive. It takes very skilled technicians to design and build centers. The infrastructure itself can run hundreds of millions of dollars. It takes hundreds of thousands of dollars every month just to power the things. Oh, and the whole thing is normally obsolete within a few years. If all of that wasn't enough, companies like Amazon or Microsoft will need to set up dozens of these all over the globe to ensure that people can browse their websites with little to no latency. So this kind of ruins the whole no marginal cost thing they had going for them. Well, yes and no. The mega corporations that have their trillion dollar valuations do have ongoing costs. In fact, up until 2017, Amazon was running at a loss and it has only just started turning substantial profit. But it is not these companies themselves that have benefited directly from having zero marginal cost, but rather they have benefited from accommodating it. Say for example, I developed the latest, greatest survival FPS or whatever it is the kids are into these days. It is all worthless if I can't actually get that out to anybody. And building game servers in countries all over the world is going to cost so much that I would never break even, no matter how great my game was. What I would rather do is just pay a company like Google or Amazon or Microsoft to rent out a little bit of their servers. They have plenty of headroom and are really already established all over the place, which is great for me because I have avoided another huge upfront cost after developing a video game, and also great for the mega corporation because suddenly it has a new revenue stream. The same is true for all manner of company web hosting from Fortnite to company emails, almost everything runs off one of these major companies. Have you ever wondered why services like Gmail or Google Drive and the like are all offered for free? It's not because Google is some super hip, generous company like they would have you believe, It's because they want you to get used to and comfortable with their particular brand of productivity apps at home. So that when you get into the office, you will use the same things all over again. It's worth it for these companies to give out these samplers to attract the real money, which is business to business sales. The modern mega corporations are tech companies that accommodate our modern world. They are facilitating innovation, developing new technologies, spreading wealth throughout the globe, but also employing far less people. Tech companies aren't necessarily good or bad, but they do have good and bad components. From the good side, what a lot of people don't realize is that tech companies like Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Microsoft are actually huge exporters for the US economy. Sure, they are not loading lines of code onto ships, and almost all of their physical products are not made in the United States, but they do still send things of value, in this case intellectual property and systems, overseas in exchange for money coming into the country. Hence, it is an export, 
which is great for the balance of trade in the US economy. No trade wars needed. On the negative side though, it must be recognized that tech companies are not great employers. Walmart was once the largest company in America and it employed over 2 million people. Today, Apple is the largest company in the United States and it only employs around 50,000 workers. The average Apple employee is paid significantly better than the average Walmart employee, but in general, it is still better to have more average paid employees than a few high paid employees. This is not the video where we discuss if inequality is good or bad. For the most part, it's irrelevant to this discussion. The reality is that these companies are becoming bigger and bigger as a part of most major economies and this kind of inequality is just going to be a product of that. We would be remiss if we didn't mention the Dutch East India Company in a video about companies that are totally definitely not planning on taking over the world. But the truth is that this one is going to need its own video. In the next video in this series, we will explore the Dutch East India Company and look at how this company may or may not have been the largest, most powerful company in history, even dwarfing the monoliths that we have explored in this video. But until then, I hope you enjoyed this video. A huge thank you to our new patrons over on Patreon. You guys continue to make this channel possible. As always, I will be hosting a Q&A session live streamed on the second channel linked in the video description. If you want to be involved in that, please come on over there or you can participate directly by joining our Discord server. Thanks guys. Bye.